And then, I don't know, at the end we'll write the book out. Um, Was okay. That, was that you typing? Yeah, I'm a mechanical keyboard. Wow. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Syntag Project Podcast. I'm Ethan, and today I have with me two guest contributors, Phil Anderson and Greg Moore. This is Phil's first appearance on the pod. Welcome, Phil. Thank Do you, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, uh, sure, I'm Phil Anderson. I'm a data scientist at 8451. It is my great pleasure to be on this podcast. <laughs> Greg, hello. Hey guys, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, also with me are two pigeons out on my balcony. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear any sounds that don't sound uh, very human, that's probably my neighbors. <laughs> Today we're going to be reviewing the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, in fact, Greg and Phil actually read this book before me and were the influences that encouraged me to read it. So I have them to thank for a very thought-provoking literary experience. So to start off, um, I think we're going to do kind of a general summary of what the book is about, what it aims to accomplish, um, just to set the tone. So Phil, do you want to start us off there? Yeah, sure. So so the book is basically, um, uh, it's kind of a history of humankind, uh, and Yuval breaks it down into into four main periods. Uh, he has a cognitive section uh, where humans basically develop the ability to think um, the way that we do now. Uh, an agricultural revolution where we figure out farming. Um, sort of a human unification um, where we develop governments and religions and things like that. And then a scientific revolution um, where we learn how to like catalog knowledge, uh, develop original knowledge, uh, and things like that, and that's kind of where we are now. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty fair summary, and um, a lot of the way Harari examines history is to put things in the context of patterns. Um, one thing I wrote down in my notes is that this book is sort of like the anti-history class. Um, I hated history as a kid because. <laughs> You know, you, you would go through high school and every day it was like memorize the names of five generals who did boring things in the year 1867. It was like these these random bits of trivia are just so irrelevant to understanding like why things happen and how things will happen in the future. Because that's the justification of history, like understanding the way the world works and thus behaving better in it in the future. Um, and this book is all about patterns. It's all about like, because of these events, we see these events and I don't know. I don't even know how many specific people's names are in this book. Like hardly ever do you hear of a particular person. It's all about like, this is the way society evolved and this is why, and this is what we should take from it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And actually I think it makes it a little bit more interesting, like you said, than a history class, because you are focused on these like broad topics rather than, uh, specific ideas. I know in, uh, AP us history, I had to memorize the, hotel room of james wilkes booth um, <laughs> and that that has uh has not played out to be particularly useful <laughs> yeah so i appreciated this uh aspect of the book yeah well um i think i think having gone through that bit we're going to jump into talking about the book's major sections so the book is divided into um four parts uh each of which has several chapters in it but the parts are in some ways um, 
macro trends that Harari wants to to emphasize, and they tend to be focused on a particular era of history. So the first of these sections is called the Cognitive Revolution, and it's basically about the beginning of human history and humans becoming human. <clears throat> yeah, so in this section, um, Yuval first introduces uh, his idea of what he calls imagined realities or shared fictions. Um, and he has like a, he has a very interesting quote that I'm going to read, and it says here, quote, Ever since the cognitive revolution, sapiens have been living in a dual reality. On the one hand, the objective reality of rivers, trees, lions, and on the other hand, the imagined reality of gods, nations, and corporations, end quote. So what he's trying to say here is that at, through the cognitive revolution, humans gain the ability to imagine and then communicate about things that don't actually exist. And then, furthermore, to give those things power and influence over humans' lives. Yeah, I think... Oh, you go, Phil. No, I think, I think that's uh, definitely a good point. Because when you think about the, the kind of dichotomy of those, of those two points, one of the things that uh, stuck out to me, or at least what I've, what I've remembered about, about this book as, as being significant as I've, in the time after I've read it, um, was the idea of like how weak humans actually are and how we actually like require um, the cognitive ability to actually like survive. Because um, he has this, he kind of like imagines the scene of uh, like humans like finding uh, some like a, like a dead deer or something that had been killed by a bear or like a pack of wolves and basically like getting the scraps of that because humans like on their own would be totally incapable of like taking down a deer like with their bare hands. And we actually like do require that ability to imagine things so that we can coordinate just because physically like when you compare us to like tigers or something, we're pretty like pretty weak. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally under equipped in that way. I think uh, Harari mentions that humans have a really odd energy balance, um, like 25% or their brain uses 25% um, more energy than the brain of a typical mammal or something, which is, in the grand scheme of things, like a pretty significant waste of energy when you can't really afford to um, to waste any energy in the wild. And it's not really clear why humans evolved this way. Um, he says that at this point, it's not obvious that they really experienced a big advantage from that. But they um, they ended up with these bigger brains. And in the long term, this turned out to be a huge blessing for them. But for a while, it, it really didn't have immediate returns. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And what the the thing that really strikes me that's interesting, and it's related to the point you were making, Phil, um, about humans uh, being relatively weak, is that um, Yuval makes a point in this in this section that without imagined realities, without shared fictions uh, that would bind us together, humans couldn't even let, uh, cooperate correctly together in groups over I can't remember the exact number, roughly a hundred people. Um, so not only are we physically weak um, and unable to, you know, take down a deer or to capture some animal through our physical strength, but without even without the ability to make things up and then believe in them, we couldn't cooperate together properly. And that just I hadn't. It makes sense after reading it, but at, before having not having read it, it never occurred to me that this was the case. Yeah, um, yeah. Harari it goes into this long example of Peugeot. I believe that's how you say it. Um, which is this French car company. 
And this is how he illustrates the idea of humans having these um, shared realities. And it, it's funny because this is so modern. and He's talking about something that is so long ago. But he says, um, what, what exactly is Peugeot? Like, if all the factories disappeared, Peugeot would still exist. If all the people in Peugeot were, like, killed, uh, all the employees were killed in some kind of catastrophe, like, it would still kind of exist. It's just a high-level... Uh, description of something that doesn't really exist but we all agree that it exists so in our minds it does and he calls these things fictions and that's that's how we cooperate because we are able to all get behind the idea of working at Peugeot or buying cars from Peugeot and even when the original guy who founded it whose name was Peugeot died um, Peugeot (laughs) still existed yeah and the the end of that example I think he makes the point that what can uh, kill an imagined reality is another imagined reality. And the point he makes is um, our system of laws. So uh, he says, you know, if the factory were to blow up, they would just build another factory and continue making cars. Or if every car that Peugeot made disappeared, they would just make more cars and still exist. But if there was some ruling by um, a uh, judicial body and said Peugeot can no longer exist for X reasons, then boom, the imagined reality is gone. The company no longer ex- longer exists. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So, uh, I, was, so I think oh keep going, Phil. Yeah, I was thinking about like kind of kind of related to that the ability of humans to cooperate. I remember reading this uh article about the company Gore-Tex. Um they make like uh yeah. really high end like outdoor stuff um with insulation. And they actually in their factories will limit the number of parking lots to hundred and fifty or some something like in that in that ballpark because that is like uh the maximum number of people that I guess we can we can interact with on like a person to person basis and like maintain relationships with. And mm-hmm. obviously like Gore-Tex is much larger than 150 people. And so they have that like shared fiction of, of the idea of this company. Um, but it was interesting that they're basically acknowledging that and as a quality control measure, they just, you know, as soon as the number of cars exceeds the number of spots, they build a new factory. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think uh, Harari gives some, some examples they're not examples per se i guess they're not specific but he he talks about how um humans are necessarily a social and gossipy animal and he says that even to get to that i think the number he gives for the maximum group is 125 even to get to that number of 125 people the only way you can really know things about everybody in the group because you don't know them personally exactly is through gossip and while we malign gossip as this like you know talking behind people's backs is bad and understandably, it's actually necessary for cooperation in large groups because you have to um, basically hear what other people think of the people in your group that you haven't met. And so really the number of people you can know personally, he gives a smaller number than that. I think it's around 50. I'm not sure. Uh, but it's funny because even these groups of 125, you really are just hearing a lot from your friends about the people you don't know on the edges of the group. Yeah, I was when I was uh, refreshing myself on the book. I remember coming across that section again, and like I think he makes the argument that he believes the origin of language is is because of gossip. Like without the need to gossip about the people we're around, language wouldn't have come into existence. Um, I'm not. I don't remember exactly. Do you guys recall like if there was any evidence given to this, or if that was just his his idea? I wasn't sure how convincing I found that. I don't remember, to be honest. Um, I will say, and this this is kind of a spoiler for my thoughts later in the episode, 
I found his arguments at this point, like early in the book, much more fact-based than later. Yeah. And I, I bought in really hard in this section. And so that makes me think there probably were examples. For most things that he talked about, it made a lot of sense. Um, and it wasn't just like pattern matching, like this story fits what happened, but it was like, I can show you other places that this same phenomenon is happening. And he definitely talked a lot about apes. And I think he may have had some examples of gossip in apes. So I, I bought in on it at least. Yeah, I think he makes an example of chimpanzee troops that they have rituals that resemble gossiping and that champ their groups don't exceed 100 chimpanzees because without the ability to make have imagined realities of, of governments or religions, they their troops can't exceed that size. So I, I, guess, yeah. I find it believable, but I would have, I guess, appreciated maybe a little more context around that in the yeah. book, maybe from a linguist or something. I actually found this section the most interesting of the whole book, and I, I could have done with this section being twice as long. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, because there was, well, I guess, oh. another another aspect of this, and this isn't, I don't know if it's necessarily as related to the gossip section, but I don't, I don't know what happened uh, in the in the social studies education system, or social studies education, at least, that I got. Maybe I was too busy memorizing apartment numbers, but... <laughs> It never, it never really occurred to me that there were like other uh, like species within the same like genus as humans. Um, so when he talks about like the five or six different uh, species that were like highly related to us, but then like died out, um, like Neanderthal and like the crow, what Magnum or whatever it was called. Um, that was that was was that the really short people? I forget. Yeah, there was. Or, yeah, there were like the people who like yeah on some island somewhere. Um, yeah but that like that blew my mind because i always know like we're like super related to like chimpanzees and apes and things like that but then there's like we we have a really hard time as a species like acknowledging that maybe we're not necessarily as unique as we think we are not because like like we we are very unique we're clearly the most intelligent like species on earth um but we we think that because we basically killed off all of these other like species that were very similar to us um like or they, or they died off or whatever yeah and yeah. i guess yeah I, I never like that just never even occurred to me like i would like go in museums and like see these like displays about like neanderthals i don't know what i was doing if i just didn't like read the signs yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no it, i it, it i had crazy. the exact same reaction i mean my mind was blown um so i had, I had a similar i thought to myself what have well, how did i not realize this before i yeah. think maybe that might just speak to Yuval's, like, really great ability to write and communicate these things. I love that you guys are on a first-name basis with him. I, <laughs> someday, someday, maybe I will be, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, no, the, the other species dying out is really interesting. And a, a point that, that Harari makes is that we picture, uh, probably because of that famous um, evolving ape graphic where there's like yeah. an ape walking and then the next step is like the ape is like more upright and then over time these like six pictures turn into a human. Um, and then he's at a computer (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) then then they just turn into like cyborgs um yeah we we picture this evolution as linear and that's like totally wrong like we were we were alive at the same time as many of these other species neanderthals are the ones that he focuses on the most but homo sapiens was not the only uh technically human uh meaning in the genus homo uh species on earth for a lot of its history and we've just really forgotten that yeah there's So one, one thing, 
one thing I was thinking about too is like uh, I know there's a lot of um, uh, recently there's there's been this like crop of uh, like artificial intelligence systems and, and people will develop these like chat bots that can bait and they'll put it behind this like human like facade like they'll put like a like a mannequin head that like has a movable jaw and eyes and stuff and you can go like talk to this mannequin head and it will give you like the simplistic chat bot responses and apparently there's some kind of effect when we see something that looks almost human but we recognize as not being human like we have this uh like deep aversion to it the like, uncanny valley yeah is that is that what it's called that's what it's called yeah, okay, yeah and that, that's what that kind of reminded me of we're like maybe this is just something that we evolved to have because there were other species that were similar to humans but not exactly humans and if it is the case, I mean, he kind of talks about this later, but if it is the case that we were like doing battle with these things or, uh, yeah, competing with them for resources and our hunter gatherer existence, like maybe, maybe that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah. Harari loves the hunter gatherers. He does. Harari, yeah. If, yeah. I think he, he, he has uh, to go be one, man, that would be like his ideal vacation. Just like run around <laughs> and pick berries. I think he idealizes them a a little too much. I read a couple different reviews and I think that he, I don't think he's in like wrong about everything, but I do think he romanticizes the idea of being oh, a totally hunter gatherer. Some things he says, it's, it just sounds like it's a magical society. He's yeah. Like, it's like, everything's he, perfect. Nobody should have ever wanted to get out of this. I'm like, yeah. clearly there were issues. Like there, I think that the first people who transitioned from hunter gatherer to agricultural would were pretty excited yeah. about the benefits. One thing he says <laughs> is, uh, he's like, He's like, you would think that these people like would starve to death all the time because, you know, they'd end up in an area where the berries were bad or like there would be a drought or um, they couldn't find any mammoths that month or something. And he's like, but no, actually, like when people had less to eat, their reproductive system naturally led them to have fewer children. And so they weren't hungry. And I'm like, well, it only works for so long. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like people still starve. <laughs> yeah. It it uh it is really funny because yeah, he I'm just sure infant mortality was much higher in the hunter gatherer society, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember well, he he kind of acknowledges too that he like might be idealizing a little bit, and it was like I don't remember the exact passage, but I was like, okay, like despite the fact that you're acknowledging this, like you're still being ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. If you like break your leg, like it's over. Like the- it's done. <laughs> Like under yeah. under some conditions, if you were a hunter gatherer, you could live to a to a like a larger age. Like I think he says, like like oh, there's evidence of like hunter gatherers living to like the 60s or 70s. And I'm like, yeah, man, that was like one guy, right? Like, one guy lived that yeah, long. Yeah, there's there's evidence <laughs> of modern humans living to 60 or 72. Right. <laughs> um, I was so I'm gonna circle back and talk briefly about the imagined realities again because uh, one of the points I want to make before we leave this section uh, that I thought. <clears throat> uh, is really insightful is um, Yuval makes a point where he describes how imagined realities came into existence and how we start to use them. But then he also describes that over time, imagined realities have become more and more powerful in the way that they control our lives. And he makes a point that it's gotten to the point where um, imagined realities are so powerful that they, um, the things that are that are real, that are in reality, that we can perceive—rivers, trees, lions, like nature—the existence of those things now depends on the imagined realities and what they choose to do. So, like laws about environmental protections from the EU or the United States, uh, and I found that point really interesting. I think it it's just telling of 
of how far removed we are from from under to even realizing the power that imagined realities have. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's they're probably getting even more powerful just because even in the last like couple of hundred years, like the the communication that we have amongst humans has gotten so reliable and so good that especially now with like the internet, that like it kind of makes sense that we'd be like solidifying and forming like uh like maybe like one government or one like shared like unified thought. And yeah, I mean the the fiction does become a lot stronger because now we're all like communicating with people all across the world and that wasn't i guess like in the cognitive revolution section that that kind of thing wasn't really on the table right right and i think yeah yeah, that ties into the unification of history that he gets into later yeah okay well are we ready to move on uh sure yeah let's do it okay so um part two is called the agricultural revolution and there's there's actually more than just agriculture happening in here, but I think section one ends and even some of section two begins with talking about how humans suddenly just spread across the world. And we, we mentioned that briefly and they, they kill off Neanderthals and also they kill off um, what Harari calls megafauna, meaning like large animals. They kill off all these large animals and over time, this is totally unsustainable. And one of the reasons humans survive is because they develop farming and they domesticate wheat and that, that domesticate goes in quotes because Harari actually says in some sense wheat domesticated humans because it forced them to live in a very different way and it made the humans actually help the wheat reproduce, right? Like humans are doing a job evolutionarily for the wheat plant by sowing the seeds of it and harvesting it every year and sowing the next seeds for the next year. Yeah, I I think this was definitely like we kind of touched on this before, but probably probably at least for me the most contentious part of this book, um, and I think it's where he starts moving from uh, like a fact based presentation of the history of humans into a fact based opinion flavored presentation of uh, the history of humans. Because yeah, he does have some like really hot takes in here, and I don't I don't know that I agree with all of them. Like I don't. Like, like we kind of said, like I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we developed um, agricultural practices. But well, we we should say Harari like definitely does. Harari he, he in this section yes. is like yeah, like human life goes from like basically a resort in Mexico to uh, <laughs> to like every day working the fields, which is really hard on the human body, and like and being the- super um, vulnerable to droughts and floods because you only have one plant and you don't hunt and so anytime anything goes wrong in nature like now you don't have any food and everyone dies and uh your diet gets really bad because you're only eating one thing which is not the way humans evolved and like he may be right about all these things but he makes it sound like we went from like the golden era to the worst possible thing and i find that a little bit hard to believe yeah no i i agree with you guys um in terms of hot takes i'll I'll just read a quote i this is the first quote that I had saved through in the agricultural revolution section. So it's fairly early on, but uh, he says, quote, this is the essence of the agricultural revolution, the ability to keep more people alive under worse conditions, end quote. And I just, I just am not sure I buy this narrative that he's spinning. Like, I think some of the things he says, like the human body wasn't designed to toil in fields and it's hard on our backs. And, you know, our diet isn't as nutritious. I think, those things are true, but he tries to paint some nightmarish picture of how terrible life is, and I just don't think that that's the case. I'm sure people 
were much happier when their children didn't pass away from malnourishment or any other number of things that are avoided when you have the agricultural revolution come along. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to call out here that the diversity of food that he's talking about, I think, is not the same way that like we think about um, the diversity of food here. Because like when I think about that, I think about going to the grocery store and I can go to the produce section. And at, at your fingertips, there's like all these fruits and vegetables that are not from the same region. Um, and you're at an unprecedented point where you can have like an orange and a green bean in the same meal. I don't know why you'd do that, but it's on the table. Um, just, just one. <laughs> just one bean. Yeah. <laughs> one bean, one quarter of an orange. That's it. Uh, and, and I think like that, that represents like pretty dramatic food diversity. But what he's talking about is going through the wilderness and like figuring out like, oh, this, this mushroom I can eat and that mushroom I can't eat. This turtle is good, good to eat. And that turtle is going to bite my hand off. And it's, it's like, that's why the brain needed to be so large and draw so much resources uh, in terms of calories is just because you had to remember all this stuff. And that, that was kind of striking for me that like when he means diversity, he means like literally like figuring out what you can eat from like a piece of tree bark. Like, can you eat the beetle that's on it? And that doesn't really sound like a great time for me. Like that sounds, that sounds like pretty stressful. Harari is so in though. I don't know. He I, is. I think I think if he had the choice, he really would go back and do it. Sounds super fun. He would. That was one one criticism that I had is it's like, okay, you're saying all this stuff and you're forming all these opinions and these are based on how many interviews with actual hunter gatherers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> primary research. We need primary research. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It is it is very funny. I will say I mean Throughout this whole book, obviously, we talked a lot about the first section. I retained much less from the other sections. Like, yes. if I go back and I make a list of of what happens in the agricultural revolution section, my thing is, like, humans take over the whole world, um, a bunch of big animals die, which actually might kind of bleed into section one, and uh, now human life is terrible because they farm. Yeah, and, it, <laughs> That's pretty yeah. and I think this is where he starts making the point that, that I do think this is actually pretty compelling, where he talks about uh, humans not being happier um today than they were like at any point really and is this the section where he talks about the cows like that where he goes all vegan yeah um there's a strong possibility of that because i know i I think it's in here yeah yeah, he like talks about like modern agricultural farming is one of the worst like uh things that we could ever do um it's like the greatest crime in in human history um so let's go into detail on this okay he he talks about um about the life of the modern domesticated farm animal specifically the cow and he he goes on a long long tangent about how terrible life is for the cow and i mean he's probably right like it's pretty miserable the cow lives in like a very small confined space and is just there until it's killed for meat but he says like this is where we see um I wrote this down in my notes the way he puts this. Oh, this isn't verbatim. But basically, evolutionary success versus happiness. Um, sometimes not only do they not align, but they actually are directly opposed. So cows are the most successful non-human mammal in history from an evolutionary perspective because oh, yeah. humans breed them. And there's a bajillion of them because we want to eat them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but life is terrible for cows. And his point here is like, this is the same thing that happened to humans in the agricultural revolution. All of a sudden there's way more of them, but life is much worse. 
And I, yeah, I like I, I think that's a pretty reasonable argument. And he goes into his own thoughts, and this is like we said, kind of off the rails of fact and into like what Harari thinks about the way we do things. And I, I'm not even saying I disagree with him, but he's like the this is where he did the like greatest crime in human history, and like oh we're we're making all these animals miserable. And I, my criticism of it would just be that um, he kind of assumes a level of consciousness that it's not really there. Was, there was no discussion of like whether we should assume this even. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think he pushes the boundaries a little on what analogies make sense. Like, I'm not sure a cow has the same level of unhappiness living in a box that a human would. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he definitely doesn't go into it's a pretty like deep area of like like ethics and things like that but he definitely does uh i'm gonna mispronounce this anthropomorphize the uh nailed it it. (laughs) anthropomorphizes the the animals and i think there was probably a sense of like well i wouldn't like living in a box um so i don't think other things would like living in a box and that's definitely there's definitely an element of of accuracy to that um but he does i think he puts the I, i guess the the thoughts and rights of animals he elevates them to be the same as humans and whether or not it's right to do that is a is like a very big debate demands more than a chapter but yes i mean he just kind of like he doesn't really present other sides of it um he presents his own his own views and and that's yeah i I see where he's coming from like vegan is having its moment right now like for a very good reason um but he didn't really provide like a balanced uh take on this I will say one one bright spot from that section was he um, he says something along the lines of biological needs evolve in such a way that they are like tied inextricably to your happiness and even things that aren't actual needs but help you with your needs um, also evolve to contribute to your happiness. So, for example, um, humans like to be able to like go out and move around and he says the same thing about cows like be able to go out and graze and mate and i mean explore is like kind of a ambitious word to use for what they do but like at least have some kind of intellectual stimulation because that is good for animals like to be able to experience the world in some way and the thing is technically these cows no longer need intellectual stimulation to reproduce and survive but the biological needs at that point have been so ingrained in evolution and they have developed these incentive systems in their brain that are chemically rewarding them for certain actions that are no longer useful and that have now been taken away from them. Um, So Harari is saying like, it's important to remember that we are still the same animals that evolved in the hunter gatherer era. So the things that made us happy then, even though they seem like a waste of time to us now, are still important because they are literally what cause chemical rewards in our brain. I thought that was a, a pretty astute point, actually. Yeah, I think I think this explained why I like hiking. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I guess I am fundamentally <laughs> different than humans in history. <laughs> well, do we have, do we have anything else in this section, or do we want to move along? Uh, I think... I'm I'm ready to move along. Yeah. Like as you guys have said, I found this section of the book to be the least useful. <laughs> one one thing I will uh, one point that I thought was interesting from I don't know if it was from this section or just from the book overall, but um, you know when you think about the an ag- like a village maybe like uh, seventy five hundred eight thousand years ago, 
and you think about maybe you visited that that village in like 6000 BCE and you're like oh, okay I, I see people like hanging out there's like a fire over there there's there's some wheat that domesticated the humans that's nice um you know you could you could go back to that exact same village or one in the same region like a hundred years later and for all intents and purposes it would be the exact same thing like maybe it's right. like four three or four or five generations removed like the people um but it's the same fire it's the same wheat um, everything's the same. And I, I think for me, it's, it was crazy to think that about that in the context of like today, where if we were to introduce somebody from, uh, 1918, uh, to the world today, I think, I think there might be like some sort of like brain trauma that occurs when you think about like all of the, like the differences, like the idea that everybody's like running around looking at these little glowing rectangles all the time, um, tapping away at them, like just the idea of like a touchscreen mobile phone, I think would be would be crazy to somebody a hundred years ago, and you know eight thousand years ago, um, that kind of progress was not even within the realm of possibility. So I think for, from this section, that was something that stood out to me. What kind of Snapchats do you think a nineteen eighteen person would send? Probably ones related to World War One. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean if they had the phone in nineteen eighteen. <laughs> Um, <laughs> all right never mind <laughs> like time. somebody riding a bicycle i feel like bicycles were like kind of kind of becoming a thing at that time yeah maybe so, like the first cars ever seen on in public roads yeah. oh yeah yeah um uh. i was i should say um what the one part of this this section of the book that stood out to me is at the end and it's titled there's no justice in history and he basically just goes through and he talks about the earliest legal systems that we have record of and how they came into existence and talks about legality across different human uh, societies. And he just basic, and I think this is when this is the section where he talks about to animals and animal suffering. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he kind of goes through and he tears down um, any, any, uh, any uh, aspect of, of thinking justice is some kind of absolute or, uh, yeah, as if yeah, as if like justice and fairness are um, inevitable and we right, improve exactly, over time. exactly. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting and valuable. Um, so I, I'll give the this this section that at the very at the minimum. Yeah. Um, going back to your point, Phil, about technological development, basically, like you could go to a village a hundred years apart. Um, I I guess I should have brought this up in the first section, but. For literally um, 50,000 years, nothing happened at all in human history. Like, literally yeah. nothing. Um, it's it's crazy, but we have progressed more in the last eight years. Like, uh, no doubt, in the last, like, since 2010, humans have made more progress than they did in the first 100,000 years of existing. Like, that's just unbelievable. Like, it took us so long to invent the wheel. It's just crazy. And so... It wasn't even like this was a linear process. It was like eventually somebody just randomly appears to have figured it out. It's not like for 100,000 years, every year, like like Leonardo da Vinci of the day was like, what if we round the other corner of the square? Like nothing was happening. <laughs> was I, think just, it's, I think it's just a series of, of different building blocks that have to come together for us to start seeing such rapid progress. And I mean, this leads into the next sections, but... It is the unification of humans, so spreading these imagined realities 
across the entire globe and getting a unified set of uh, what makes an acceptable human society. And then it is the scientific revolution. So we finally admitted our ignorance and that we actually don't understand the world around us. Um, and those yeah. things coming together later uh, is what you know allows us to make more progress in eight years than we did in 50,000. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'd like to point out that uh, I actually did not read this book. I listened to it um, via an audio book, and that, that type of thing wasn't possible. The way that I did that, like just downloading it, um, listening to it on my headphones, that type of thing wasn't even possible probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Yuval can thank the like dollar fifty of revenue he got from that lesson to uh, <laughs> to the technology that he's not a huge fan of. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let, let's move on. So we're we're running long, but I think we'll be okay because these other sections will take less time. Yeah. Um. I think I think we both have less positive and less negative to say about the last two. So, um, the third section is called the unification of humankind, and there's a few. I would consider them fairly disparate um, major topics that he wants to hit here, but he kind of ties them together as all being imagined realities. So those are, are largely about um, money, empires, and religion. And these are the idea is these are all things that everyone agrees exist, and they have helped bring people together and form society as we see it today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the from this section, what's really interesting is he... Um, equates uh, different um, different ways of thinking about society, such as capitalism or communism, and he equates those two religions, and he basically says these are the same thing. Um, they're imagined realities that we we buy into, and then allow to allow them to dictate things to us about our lives. Yeah, I think I think that was particularly interesting for me, just because like in the U.S. at least we have the like. Uh, hard separation of church and state and i think when he basically says like hey no these are these are actually meeting like the pretty much the same the same need um and like you said like the communism government or like a social philosophy or economic philosophy is essentially mm-hmm. a religion in a way um right. i was like oh okay yeah i guess i guess he's right about that yeah. yeah i agree i agree with you i think it was probably i had subsetted these things in my brain just from my bit upbringing and when he explains it, I'm like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. These are fulfilling the same needs and they'll give us a common, a commonality among uh, all of our uh, fellow humans to say like, Oh, we all live together under capitalist system and, and all the things that entails. I think Harari does a really good job. Um, giving really clear proof that it's impossible to draw the line between religion and not religion. Um, because I think a lot of people have like a mental model of what religion is, but especially people who are less familiar with, um, international and uh, traditionally, um, religions that are less prominent in America, you introduce them to something like Buddhism and that really doesn't fit the model, but that's like clearly accepted as a religion, right? But there's, there's no God in Buddhism. Um, and so very quickly as you find more examples of, basically belief systems to generalize beyond religion. It's really hard to draw a line between what even is a religion and what is not. And so Harari goes, essentially goes so far as to say like the lines, if we drew them would be arbitrary. So we should consider these all the same class of things. And if money is what drives you, then in some way money is your belief system. 
And if imperialism is what drives you, then imperialism is your belief system. And he says basically, like, whatever it takes to bring large groups of people together under some kind of goals and some kind of um, agreements of what's true, that is basically just a religion. And I, I find that point very compelling, actually. Um, and when viewed under that light, it kind of makes sense some empires that have been non-religious, so like China, which is um, very opposed to to being a religious state. I mean, what is their religion? In some sense, communism, I think Harari would say. And, and I think that, that squares. Yeah, and I, I think the, the point about money for me was very interesting because money basically developed as a way for us to get out of a bartering system and just have a more efficient way to like buy and purchase goods and services. And when you think about how money itself has actually evolved, like going from maybe like a precious stone or a precious metal um, that everybody agreed was valuable to then like just being like piece, like literally just pieces of paper that we've printed things on to today being essentially just like, um, like magnets on a hard drive or charges on a hard drive. Um, especially with things like cryptocurrency, it really is like something where you just kind of like everyone's just believing that this thing exists, um, but it really actually has like there's nothing physically physically even there at this yeah. point. It's all just on a computer. Yeah, he just says you want money because other people want money, and what was important to the development of money was that somebody wanted it. And that's really all it takes to set off a chain reaction of like, well. I know this is valuable to my friend, and so I want to collect a tune, and it now has value to me because I know that I can exchange it with this other yeah, person. Yeah, big shout out to Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, big shout out to the, the precipitous drop in price of Ethereum because that is going to make it feasible for me to finally buy a graphics card for my computer. <laughs> Congrats. Uh, yeah. Big day for me. Yeah. It was probably better to be a, a berry picker, but I will settle for being a person who sits at home and plays video games on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't actually have much else to say on this section. How about you guys? Yeah, not, no, not much. No. Yeah, he kind of, I, I think he kind of takes the same framework and applies it to a number of different concepts and uh, mostly within reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the last section is called the Scientific Revolution. And I don't think it's as profound as the first section, but he has similar macroeconomic, I don't know if they're economic, some of them are, basically macro historical trends that, that are, if they're true, very meaningful to the way we should look at human society today. And so I did find that really interesting. So some of the big things he hits on are science becoming important and capitalism becoming the way we run the world basically and he he talks a little bit about like why these developed yeah is is this the section where yeah i guess so is this the part where he also talks about some of the implications of of advancement i think so uh it's or is that the afterward some in the afterward oh uh, okay yeah so um one thing uh, so here here is what i would say is the most interesting part of the section in my opinion it, um Harari says science was perceived as basically like not even a thing that you would do. Like, why, why would you go science? <laughs> like, um, because there was no benefit to learning about the world for so, so, so long. And like technological advancement that was happening. I mean, we talked about how we did develop farming and eventually we built like cities. There was technological development, but it was so slow that nobody really saw the value in its development. Um, and no one was investing in it. 
But this all changes in Europe when imperialism takes hold because suddenly it's valuable to have scientific advancement for your military prowess. And as soon as um, the people in charge of society realize this, all of a sudden uh, investment is funneled into science like it never has been before. Up to this point, uh, religion had always dominated science. And one thing Harari says is religion is basically... Um, a style of understanding the world that assumes you have all the answers and you don't need any more. So you look at this in a lot of, of religious texts, like the idea is that there's a figure who has all the answers and reveals them to you when the time is right. And that, that's true in Christianity and that's true in other things too. Um, but science took this quintessentially different approach, which was like, the fact that we don't know these things doesn't mean we shouldn't. It means that we need to find out. And so science went in and this makes it sound like science is like a, uh, a person <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the science uh, eventually developed all of these things that made a huge difference to military might and along the way also influenced regular society and that spurred investment in it and eventually the way we know science today is something that like well of course we need to understand the world better because it helps us for a long time it wasn't clear that understanding the world better did help us yeah i, th- I think it's actually kind of playing out right now with the uh the whole like artificial intelligence arms race that's going on. I mean, it's, it's basically like, you know, you have like um, a lot of the really big technology companies are all like pouring tons and tons of money into this. Governments are pouring tons and tons of money into it because they've realized that allowing computers to automate perceptual tasks can actually help them in such things as like, um, you know, spying on people um, essentially. But, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how like, like China's really going after that. The U S is really going after that. Canada has been going after it for like 30 years. Um, and it is, it's, it's kind of all in this tons of money being poured into this just to get some sort of like military edge. Um, and it, it's amazing. That's just, it's playing out like literally right now. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting. Um, so science obviously is tied into, I, I think I used the word investment like six times when I talked before. Science is like really tied into investment because you need, you need capital um, to do a lot of scientific work. And so Harari goes from science into talking about capitalism and why capitalism works and why largely the globe has become capitalist. And one thing he points out that I had never really thought about, and I'm going to struggle to explain this because it is kind of complicated, but... Basically, by accepting that you can give loans to people, um, by beginning the process of lending and financing, you create more capital in your economy because several people can be responsible for a resource. Um, this, this explanation is, is tricky, so you guys can jump in if you want. But one thing he says is like, you would never... So you could have extra wood maybe um and you would really have no incentive to lend that wood to your neighbors except maybe like if you were in a small community where it was important that everybody survived but as soon as the idea of like interest and owning a stake in something developed then lending wood to someone was like well now i have a stake in your business or whatever you're developing might be business um and that gives me a lot more incentive to want to lend you this. And so all of a sudden, extra resources were being allocated more efficiently. And people, money was in the economy at this point too, obviously. And money played out the same way. And so now we're actually using all of our resources rather than just having them sit around um, unused. And 
capitalism has taken over because it's a very efficient allocation of these resources. Yeah, I think that's pretty well put. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks, guys. Um, no, I mean, it, it's, and even, even the idea of credit is something that uh, would have been, would have been wild to think about a thousand, or maybe not a thousand years ago, but you know, 10,000 years ago, the, and it is just much more efficient use of, just much more efficient use of resources because you don't have money just sitting around not doing anything. It's being lent out. Um, and now there's like a reward system for lending it out. Like you collect interest on it and then you end up with even more. Um, yeah. And it allows things to just get, allows capital to be allocated a lot more efficiently and yeah, just kind of greases up the gears, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of really, um, I don't know. Harari explains things that I, I think do make sense in the book, but I have a hard time explaining outside of, of like having the book in front of me. Maybe that means I haven't <laughs> yeah. learned it very well, but I, I was convinced by the arguments that he put for why science and capitalism took over. Um, he does have one interesting bit about why, why was Europe so successful in this era, basically? Like, we a lot of culture in the world now has been heavily influenced by European culture and a lot of the richest countries are in Europe. And basically Harari says like, well, it just happened that Europe figured out capitalism and the value of science before everybody else. And it seems to be random, but the returns from that were so massive that they just kept that edge for a very long time. Um, and I don't know, like I wanted more of an answer there and it's good when people are willing to say that they don't know, but I just found that kind of unsatisfying. I think the I think part a part of that as well in terms of Europe being successful is not only that they figured out capitalism and they realized that admitting ignorance can be a powerful thing, but that then they went out into the rest of the world and said we are going to start cataloging, investigating things that don't even matter to the United Kingdom. They're not on the island; they're thousands of miles away from us, but we're going to do it anyways. So he gives some examples of recording history the history of india and different animals that live there and other information as well um i think that that gave them a really powerful edge in that they were allowed able to spread their culture around the world as well as document and catalog all this information that could then lend them to to then explore other parts of the world they haven't gotten to yet um and nobody nobody had done that nobody and i i guess it was just random i'm not sure but I think that that is the critical aspect is that they didn't just sit on their hands with this, with these new ideologies. They went out and made use of them other parts of the world. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's also kind of a thought of like, um, in a way like wealth begets wealth because in order to even do something like that, I mean, that, that really shows like, I mean, it shows like a sign of pretty significant human advancement. When you think about like Darwin, like traveling, traveling around to the Galapagos, like, documenting the different finches or whatever they were like even the idea that like somebody like that a country could fund that kind of expedition um it's kind of crazy because it's something that it provides no like like sustenance uh advantage for the people you're just going around like documenting birds and we we got a lot of understanding out of that and it was good but the idea that you could like even have the resources to invest in that kind of knowledge collection is pretty crazy yeah I, yeah, I totally agree. That's I a great agree. example of like there there was a point where governments and society just realized like it is worth funding science even if we have no idea what the returns will be. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this section ends on um, on Harari basically saying like Homo sapiens as we know it is not going to exist anymore because of all the changes that we're undergoing. And we we talked earlier about how fast history is moving now in some sense that like the rate of progress is just enormous. Um, and so uh, we I don't know are you guys ready to move on because this kind of segues into the afterward. Oh uh, sure. Yeah. So the afterword is, I don't know, I, I think kind of dumb. Um, <laughs> basically, basically uh, just talking about how like, like, wow, like technology is so wild. In a couple of years, we're all going to be cyborgs and we're going to live in space. And like, <laughs> who knows what will happen? <laughs> it, it's just really, really abstract. And like, I don't disagree with him, but I just don't care what he thinks because he's He's just like, I think, it's, I don't know. He's just, he's just like, I think maybe we will all have robotic robotic limbs. And it's like, well, I think maybe we will. Like, who knows? We It's so hard to extrapolate from this. And just because you, like, have done all the research on the past here, it's not really clear that, like, the way people farmed is going to influence what kind of cyborgs we become. And I, I don't think that he's wrong that we could have cyborgs. Like, that's a reasonable point. But he just he just goes really off the rails extrapolating was my thinking. Yeah, I think this section was probably partly inspired by his publisher wanting him to uh, tee up a sequel, um, yeah. which which did come out on this very topic. Um, I, Half I think... of which I have read. <laughs> it, I started it four months ago, five months ago, and it's uh, it's tough. It's yeah, it's it's, it's no sapiens. Um, I, I think for me, this section, this I think I enjoyed this section a little bit more than than you did, mainly because it it caused me to view like a lot of things that we have happening today through a different lens. We, we kind of touched on this with like progress. Cause I think shortly after I read this, um, uh, I think I visited, I visited Portland, Oregon, and there's a mountain there called Mount hood. And I remember flying out of the Portland airport, looking out the window at Mount hood and realizing that this was a view that for the vast majority of the history of humans, this view was not accessible. Like I was looking at like how these like tectonic plates had like collided and made this mountain and it's like this bump and it's so cool. And I was in awe of that for about 15 seconds so that I closed the shade and started looking at my computer. Um, and I was thinking about like, yeah, like what, what happens when things that like uh, are really maybe today seem like crazy or maybe a hundred years ago seem crazy become mundane. And like the pace of change is just so fast that like as humans, we just cannot keep up with it. Um, and I, I think about like even even my own career in like a technology oriented occupation where like the primary programming language that I've used over the course of the last six years has changed five times. And it's like, what, like how do you train people to do a job when the skills that you learn become obsolete in like three years? Um, like, I mean, do you just spend all of your time like investing and in learning or at some point? Are we basically just reaching the point where uh, humans, we, we just, we're just reaching the end of what we can do cognitively? And maybe he's right. Maybe we are going to have to like supplement what we know in some sort of like matrix-like situation where we're just downloading information into our brain um, or using some kind of like augmentation systems to make us, to make us better. Because I, I have thought about that. I don't really know because um, I don't know if it is realistic to basically have a workforce that you're constantly retraining i don't know yeah that's a that's a reasonable point i guess there was more to this section than i remember um part of it is that i have just i just had my mind wiped by reading half of the sequel uh yeah and he just he just hammers these points over and over um 
but yeah, those are those are really important things to think about. So I, I will retract some of my previous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, some yeah, I uh, looking skimming over the afterward again. Um, what stuck out to me um, is is he starts he discusses he says that. Uh, sapiens, uh, sapiens have not really produced or accomplished all that much that we can be proud of. And then he goes on and lists all these, all these things that I think we could be proud of that we've done. Like we've increased food production and built cities and huge networks of people. But he's, then he asks this, this question and it, uh, he says, have we, have we like reduced the suffering of humanity in the world or the suffering of other animals? And, uh, I don't know. I find that a little irritating because I'm like, you've just written an entire book. And if you wanted to make this point, you could have tried to study the amount of suffering for people like in a more <laughs> thorough and quantified way and compare that to the amount of suffering we have now and actually give us an approximation. I mean, I just find that, that is a good point. <laughs> you, I, he just seems like at the end, it leaves me a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because it feels like. Like I've learned a lot from this book that that at the end it feels like he still has this agenda and like he wants to stand on his soapbox and say like humans still suck and we haven't done anything when I just don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the controversy of the book came from. Is yeah. he this dude just like hates humans. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes yeah, down to it. I mean he, he makes he makes good points, but he doesn't it's not like a balanced uh like a balanced take and it's, it's fine. It's not going to be balanced. Like he's the one writing it. Um, but I definitely, there were some points where I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with this. Like, I don't think it's bad that we have like the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, right. <laughs> it seems, it seems pretty chill to me. Yeah, um, arguably the best thing about humanity. Cincinnati, yeah. Ohio. yeah. <laughs> when we write down the best things we've done. <laughs> yeah. And, and in the spirit of, uh, of you all, we're not going to provide a balanced view on that. Cincinnati is the best. <laughs> it's Cincinnati is the best period. End of the discussion. So, um, okay. So that, that wraps up our summary of the book, which obviously has taken most of our time, but I, I think we're going to do a quick run through of what we viewed as the key themes of the book. And then some some pros and cons and takeaways and whether we'd we'd uh, recommend the book to someone else. So let's let's go through our themes, many of which we've already talked about. So the the first one for me is fictions. I think at the beginning Harari introduces fictions, and it's clear they're important, but it's not clear that they're going to be basically the subtopic of the whole book. But I, I think they are in almost everything he talks about. Um, the underlying thread is that humans either in this section are focused on the fiction or the fiction is what's allowing them to create what they're creating. So at the beginning he talks about, um, what's it called? Animism, I think where humans worship trees. Um, yeah, again, again, apparently more fun worshiping trees than growing wheat, but, uh, (laughs) they, they suddenly see these things in their environment and they tell stories about them and they're like the great tree. God is, uh, is the thing that supports us and keeps us alive. So we should all bow down to the trees and that initially helps them form societies. And then eventually they have governments, which are a fiction and that's how they figure out um, forming cities and having agriculture. And we talked about the whole section on um, money and religion. And these are huge fictions. And then even science and capitalism, capitalism in particular is like huge global fiction of 
investments and like everybody agreeing on this money having value even though it's not real at all and we all have these common goals that really aren't obviously about us Uh, we work for companies that produce things that are often even intangible so the whole way through this book i think it's just like oh this is an example of fiction or this is an example of a direct effect of a fiction yeah i agree and i think the fate like fictions imagined realities that topic in and of itself just makes this book worthwhile like if you uh i would encourage just reading the first section because uh, I think you'll come away with, with a new appreciation of yeah. the world. I agree. It changes the way you look at things, because all of a sudden you see mm-hmm. these fictions everywhere. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I would say that's like a, that's a pro of the book, generally. Not even just on the fictions part, but like it is one of those like I don't know, like half a dozen or so books that you come across where it's like, after you read it, you no longer view things like the same way as you viewed them before. Um so now it's like every time I go into like some sort of like retail environment, I just I just start thinking about like the fiction of it, like uh, like oh what's like so yesterday it was like what's the fiction of of Costco, um, and of course my employer Kroger, um, you know like like thinking about like how that came to be and all the people working there are like in some sense like participating in this great Costco fiction, um, and yeah like it, it just it just like you I, I would say like maybe not every day but definitely like at least once or twice a week, like there's something that I'll think about because of this book and it just changes. It's like a different lens, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. agree. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the second one I wrote down is evolutionary success versus actual happiness. And we we cover this pretty thoroughly in the section about cows and the agricultural revolution, but like Harari is all in on this. I, I am less willing to, um, I don't know. This isn't the life changer for me that fictions is, Mm-mm. but it, it's a valid point. But Harari like really is invested in driving this home. Yeah, I think I think it was to me it was pretty compelling. But I think part of the reason that it's compelling is because like we really can't go back and ask people. Like, there's no way that we can conduct like a test and say like, oh, these people lived in total isolation. These people lived and with some farming, and these people lived in a in a modern day society and we randomly assign them and now we, we can evaluate their happiness. Like you, you can't like, it's like, he's yeah. able to make really compelling arguments because something like that is not reasonable. Um, and, and I think, I think maybe he's right. Like he makes the lottery winner versus a uh, broken leg or whatever it was example where, you know, you could win $10 million in some sort of, uh, you know, state sponsored lottery, or you could break your leg in 18 months after these things happen. Uh, you're at the exact same level of of happiness, and, I, and so I think that for me, I was like, oh, okay, I I could see how that would, how that could work out. Like, you know, so I, mean, I guess I can kind of see what he's saying, but again, like, there's not really a lot of evidence for that. It's a lot of speculation on his part. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair. There's there's no counter examples. We're never going to be able to disprove some of these ideas, but despite that, the case he makes is is reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a smaller one and we mentioned this before too is that religion and other fictions are generally stories about the world that assume we have all the answers they're, they're stories that say either the answers are all solved and someone or something has them and we should like look to that thing for the answers um, or on the other hand uh, science 
is this idea that we have almost none of the answers and we are working towards the answers and it is our responsibility to find them ourselves. And the contrast here is sharp and we are, we have been, I shouldn't say are because Harari does say not necessarily is the current direction, the direction we're going to stay on, but we have been moving farther and farther towards science over religion in this aspect for the last several hundred years. Um, What about you guys? What themes do you have? Yeah, I would say the, the big one for me really was just uh, something we touched about in the afterwards and that like or afterward and just like what do we do as a species once we've once we've essentially like uh, solved all the problems that we evolved to deal with. I know like one one thing that struck out to me was the example of like uh, conservation efforts to save things like tigers and wolves. Um, this is something that we do now, and it's actually crazy to think about because these are things that for us are natural predators. And we've gotten to the point where we are actually making significant investments in trying to save something that we evolved to fear. That like 10,000 years ago, like we would not have been like making efforts to save like tigers. Um, we would have been trying to eradicate tigers because they're terrifying if you encounter them in a jungle. Because um, you're not or winning that one. Um, and, I, and I think like, yeah, like just as a species, like there is some sort of like existential issue Um or like crisis even where it's, it's like, yeah, like what, what do you, what are we going to do going forward? And that's the subject of his uh, inferior sequel, uh, Homo Deus. Um, but it is, it is something it's worth thinking about. Yeah. Um, I'm coming up with a blank, so I'm not going to add anything. The biggest thing for me was fictions and we've hammered that. We've hammered that home. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay have. with that. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, overall pros of the book, uh, I'll go first. We can all just do very briefly like w- what made this good. Um, uh, like I said, I think the book just changes the way you look at the world. Um, it, it fundamentally deconstructs a lot of what we see as a, what, the high-level abstractions we see every day. Um, so many things that it, it's easy not to look under the surface, but as soon as you do, you're like, this is just so strange that the world works this way but it is at the same time totally explicable based on the way we've developed and it's usually about fictions um i and also the idea that um that our biological needs don't go away even though the way that we live does uh or does change and so the things that made us happy when we were living a life of hunter hunting and gathering are still the things that make us happy and we just have to accept that sometimes because we are fundamentally the same animals before um so that i think those those general like look at the world differently moments are what i got out of this book that i like the best yeah i agree and along with that i think um with that new view of the world, uh, another pro of this book is I is I came away think uh, came away with um, feeling like now that I understand these imagined realities and I'm aware of them and I've you know looked under the hood, uh, I felt empowered in that that this isn't the way that things have to be. Uh, we can edit our imagined realities to to better. Uh, to better align with the way that we view the world should work. And I think that's empowering. Yeah. Uh, very empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And then only thing I would add to that is probably, uh, I think any time that you encounter something that challenges the way that you see things or, or forces you to evaluate them, 
uh, or things you take for granted and forces you to evaluate those in a new way and in such a compelling way that we're sitting here talking about it, I think is is typically a rare and valuable experience. Um, and that, that to me is for probably the biggest pro of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with, with uh, that being good too. Um, for cons, uh, you guys can go first. I'll go last time. Um, the big, the bigger, the biggest con for me is, is he, I guess it's two things. One is he has, he has an agenda in the aspects of this book and he has a point of view that he wants to get across. And, um, I think that's fine, but, but it can be a bit deceiving when you first begin this book, you think it's just going to be more academic look of human history. And that isn't always the case. So I'd want, I'd want readers to be aware of that. Um, and then the other thing is that he makes um, some pretty um, outstanding claims, uh, some, some exaggerated claims, and doesn't always provide a whole lot of evidence as to why that's the case. And that can be, that can be frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, for me, I struggle with whether or not, like, the, the hot takes are necessarily a con, just because, like, they do, I think those are the things that really get you thinking. Um, or the idea of like maybe a, like, like modern agricultural practices being this really great crime, like not everyone's going to agree with that. Um, but it does it does for like the way that he says it and the way he presents it, like it forces you to really think about those issues. Um, and so while while it is a con in the sense that uh, it's really his opinion, I guess it, it is good to be confronted with his opinion in some sense, because that's that's what forces you, I think, to really view things differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I yeah I think uh, based on the way I've talked about a lot of the book, probably people would think my biggest con is yeah his opinion bits. But actually, um, I think the the least enjoyable part of the book and the least uh, intellectually stimulating is him extrapolating about the future, because at least as you said, Phil, at least when he talks about views he has that are kind of unsubstantiated, they are very thought provoking. And it's things that I think we should all be forced to consider. There's a lot of things like that where I'm willing to ponder this because it would be good for me to look at the world differently, even if I don't end up changing my mind. But when he just extrapolates about the future, and again, this is informed by me having read a lot of the sequel. um, I just don't think that, there's much value in this. Like, I, I don't think that he, he's more qualified than like a random person on the street, but I don't think that anybody really is qualified to give these kinds of predictions, except maybe people who are in the driver's seat. So I think like, I would be infinitely more interested in what Elon Musk thinks about the next 50 years to a hundred years and farther out than Harari, because a lot of Harari's, ideas i think don't really translate into the next era um and he admits that he says like the way we've done things up to this point is not how we will do things now that we have all this technology and stuff and so i i don't think that it really falls into his domain expertise anymore and now we're just listening to someone who is like interested and and has a platform but not really qualified to say anything useful anything that's a a prediction we can actually act on yeah, it's basically it's speculation that's informed by the rest of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh so ratings, would you recommend it and what would you give it out of 10? Uh I would definitely recommend it. I think it's worth a read for sure. Um and I would give it 
seven out of ten. Yeah, I, I would recommend it. I would I would rate it like uh within the like nonfiction uh whatever whatever genre this book is in, with in whatever subgenre it's in, I give it like a nine. Um, what about in the whole genre of books? In the whole genre of things that I've read, it depends. It depends on how you're evaluating them. Um, okay, Phil. <laughs> I am. Just give I am us a number. Analyst. We just want a single number. <laughs> um, probably. I don't know. Probably an eight or a nine, just in the sense that, like, I, I think it it does change the way you see things. Like, it's not like a like great work of fiction or something that people are going to cherish for hundreds of years, probably. But but in the moment, I think it I think it's pretty solid. Yeah, I I would recommend it, and I would give it a nine and a half out of ten. It is it is probably one of the two most influential um, nonfiction things I've read, and certainly one of the two most influential things I've read in the last five years. Um, I appreciate the kind of book that that um, both gives you facts in an interesting way, but also changes the way you act and i'm not sure that i could like give examples of how it's changed things but certainly the way i view the world and like the way i read uh coverage of current events in particular has changed um i just think like so many things you watch and you think ah like we we are all just at the mercy of this larger fiction that we've created and no individual has the ability to change it. And so now like things are the way they are, but Greg, like you said, it's kind of empowering to know that eventually the fictions can change. And if you want to change the way society works, you need to be working to change the fictions. You all have to be doing things at the macro level, not at the micro level. Um, and I, I found that extremely interesting. So thanks for making me read it guys. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> Yeah. Anything else we want to hit before we go? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good as well. Cool. Okay. Well, um, thanks to you guys for joining us. Uh, I hope it was a, a good first podcast experience, Phil. Yep, sure was. <laughs> uh, be- <laughs> before we go, um, I want to plug a couple of new articles on the site. So uh, Matt Gillum recently wrote another piece in his series about moving to Columbia, which I would recommend. Um, I think it will make you think through your own habits in a new way as Matt examines his. And I authored a piece on internet speeds uh, during different times of the day and the week, which would come in handy specifically if you're both um, a very lazy Netflix consumer, but also really flexible in the time of day that you're willing to watch. So maybe if you are a college student that doesn't go to class. Um, so, (laughs) so anyway, check out the site um, and please follow us on Twitter at syntax project share the podcast with your friends um it really helps to get the word out this early on and uh it's very helpful in the infancy of the site if you have any feedback tweet at us and thank you for listening